Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit TVO.org and make a tax-deductible donation today. One day at Massey College at the University of Toronto, our next guest was giving a speech at a book launch. The speech was good. In fact, after it was over, former Ontario Finance Minister Greg Sorbera leaned over to me and said, why don't we just give her the job for life? Well, Elizabeth Dowdswell wasn't our Lieutenant Governor for life, but she did have the job for longer than anyone else ever. From 2014 to 2023, her honor managed to get to every riding in the province representing the Crown and performing her duties with grace and perseverance. And we're delighted to welcome back to TVO, Elizabeth Dowdswell, to find out what she thought of her 3,339 days as our LG. Good to have you back in that chair. Thank you very much. Can I take you way back? Let's go back to the beginning. Why did you want that job to begin with? Because I was asked and I was honored and I couldn't imagine saying no. Never entered my head. Why not? Because, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of controversy around the job. There's a lot of people who think the job ought not even to exist anymore. So why take it? But, you know, you have an opportunity. It's such a, it's such a mysterious platform. Part of the job is the constitutional aspect. And you, you see that demonstrated when you give the speech from the throne and when you swear in cabinet and uh, when you sign documents and give royal assent. But that is such a small part of the opportunity. The big part of the opportunity is what? Is dealing with citizens of this province, of hearing their stories, of bringing them together in in very informal ways, but just just getting to know who are these people? Why do they live where they do? Why, uh, what are their aspirations for their communities? And what, what are the barriers they face? Well, let me pick up on that because I'm sure you did not plan to have this job during a once in a century global pandemic in which obviously everything about how you did your job changed. Did you ever during the course of that think to yourself, hmm, maybe this wasn't such a great idea to have this job after all? Absolutely not. Why not? Because I loved every day. There was never a day when I wasn't ready to get out of bed and go into work. And it was, uh, it was just the inspiration that comes. It, it was curiosity. I learned absolutely every day. And there wasn't a week that went by that I didn't think of something mischievous to be able to do, to be, to be able to convene people, to be able to, uh, to hear their stories. Now that's interesting because we don't think of the Lieutenant Governor as part of the job description being mischievous. So what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, mischievous in the sense of, uh, of bringing people together who don't normally have a chance to be together, introducing them to one another, talking about issues that are well beyond an electoral uh, cycle, um, but just learning from each other and, and seeing the, the interest in their faces when they would be introduced to somebody whose work they'd never heard of. Uh, um, somebody like a, uh, like a Dr. Joe McGuinness, for example, uh, an underwater doctor, um, adventurer, um, 
or or even just the man down the street or the little girl down the street who's doing amazing things in her own neighborhood. Well, one of the things I learned from you is that it's not just the lieutenant governor's job uh, to advise her first minister and take advice, from, I guess, you know, have those regular conversations as part of your job, but it is also your job to warn your first minister. What did you warn a premier about, for example? Well, I would not... Uh I would not release the confidences of those uh, conversations. Now, that's such a shame, because I'm... Well, it, it may be, uh, except that it's a respect for the position. Uh, if, if people started talking about what those conversations were all about, then the very essence of the role of being nonpartisan, apolitical, uh, and, uh, and, and having the respect, it's a very unique and special relationship between the first minister and the lieutenant governor. You know what you and I have in common? Is that I like to be mischievous in my job too. <laughs> so get ready, Your Honor, here we go. You had two different premiers during your term, Kathleen Wynne and Doug Ford. Who'd you like dealing with more? I always like dealing with uh, the, uh, the uh, first minister of the day because I could, I could try and understand what was going on uh, but it was more that you got to know them as human beings as well. These two premiers, as I think back on the 26 people who've sat in that chair, couldn't be more different. One's a woman, one's a man. One's gay, one's straight. One's a liberal, one's a conservative. One's diminutive, one is big. One's a policy wonk, one's a populist. How do you, as LG, deal with two such starkly different characters consistently? Well, I think you start from the perspective of respect. They, they have uh, uh, duly uh, won an election. Uh, the public of this province have, uh, have given them trust and confidence uh, to, uh, to take them where they need to go as a society. Um, why would I not respect that in them? And so what you do is, uh, as, as anybody in public life does, you, you actively listen uh, to what they're saying. Uh, you, uh, you try and understand. Um, and it, you really try and set aside your own views. I often would say that one of the most difficult parts of my job was learning to keep my mouth shut <laughs> because I'd been in public policy a lot of my life. And I do have views on most things, but those get left at the door. Do they confide in you? Yes in the sense of being respectful and coming to know the value of having someone they can talk to where they know the conversations go nowhere. Again, you're gonna forgive me here, but I wanna just sort of gently push you a little bit more to reveal a bit more. Can you tell us the kinds of things, not the specifics, but the kinds of things that a premier of the day might confide in you? Well, as you might expect, uh, it depends on what kind of day they've had. Uh, so they may come in feeling exasperated, or they may come in and say, oh, I just need a break. I'm so glad I'm here. Um, and, uh, or they may say, you know, I've been thinking a lot about such and such. What are you hearing on this same issue? Um, and there are times when I would say, Premier, could you, could you tell me why you took this decision? Uh, or could you tell me what's behind this? And uh, it's, it's part of my due diligence 
But uh, as I say, it just leads to a, an amazing conversation. What did they call you? Your Honor. Never called you Elizabeth or... Never. 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 What did you call them? Premier. Always? Yes. Never first names? No. Um, okay. Can you, again, going to push you a little further here if I can, can you say to a Premier as part of doing your due diligence, you know, I've heard you want to announce X, Y, and Z, and... You know, I don't think that's going to work. Can you rethink that? I would never put it like that. <laughs> what what I would say it? is, I understand you're thinking about this. You know, here's what I hear from Ontarians. And both premiers were very respectful because, uh, and certainly Premier Ford was fond of saying he didn't know anybody who'd been in every political riding in this province, including himself. As you have. And so he, uh, he knew that when I said this was what I had heard or was hearing. Um, and, and I think he also knew um, there were times when there were, he knew that there were parts, and so did uh, Premier Wynne, uh, knew that, that uh, I'd had this um, interesting set of experiences in public policy. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it would be a question saying, did this ever come up in the work you did on such and such? And, uh, and so it was... Uh, it was uh, a very, usually very engaging conversations. Did you ever have an argument? I would, I often said, I wish you wouldn't say that. Or <laughs> Oh my gosh, okay, like about what? Oh no, <laughs> I won't go there. <laughs> because, you know. Uh, well, it, partly it was communications, and that, or I'd say, why do you keep referring to that? Why, why, do, you, why do you frame it like that? And, and there was clearly some edge in the question. Well, curiosity sometimes, <laughs> Maybe want, more. wanting to know. Um, I want to show you a couple of pictures here and ah. have you uh, discuss what is happening. Okay, Sheldon, can we have the first picture up here? This is Elizabeth Dowdswell meeting a very nice older woman whose name, I believe, was the same as yours. That's you and Queen Elizabeth. Where is that meeting happening? That's in Buckingham Palace. And is that the first time you've met? Uh, yes. That is. What it, is that like? It's wonderful. Um, I had had some engagement with members of the royal family in previous work, but not, uh, not with her. But uh, she was delightful, full of humor. Um, she knew my file. Uh, her very first question to me actually related to um, a visit that I'd made up to um, KI on Big Trout Lake. Uh, oh. because I had uh, invited as part of the uh, small team of people going, uh, uh, the, the Duchess of Edinburgh now, uh, Sophie. And, uh, and uh, so she, uh, uh, she talked about that trip. Do you, I presume you get briefed pretty heavily before you go in to meet the Queen, right? Do this, don't do that, that kind of thing? Yes. And... I mean, are you petrified when you're standing there with the Queen no. of... No, you're no. not? She's very welcoming, very warm, very humorous. Um, I remember one of the questions is always, what do you give a queen? You know, <laughs> that, and so that people pay attention to that. And I decided that I would simply take a, a piece of blown glass done by an artist in, uh, in Ontario. And uh, the first thing she asked me was, tell me about this. And I say, well, Your Majesty, I always try to give gifts that I'd like to receive myself. 
Nice. And, uh, and she thought about it and she looked at it. Uh, it was a beautiful piece of, of a small piece of glass. Mm. And uh, she said, you know, I think I'm going to take this home to uh, uh, home with me. Uh, because nice. you know that people get so many gifts, they often go in closets. But uh, she probably was saying that because she was very generous and kind and made me feel welcome. But I remember having a conversation with our high commissioner in London, and he said, Liz, you don't need to worry. She said, the only thing on Her Majesty's mind will be how to make you feel comfortable. Hmm. And she did. And she did. Okay, here's another picture. Sheldon, can we have number two up, please? This is Premier Doug Ford and Lieutenant Governor Elizabeth Dowdswell. And I want to get to some of the behind the scenes of this picture because this was an unusual occurrence. Um, Almost six years ago, when Doug Ford was sworn in as the Premier, the official ceremony where you swore him in takes place inside the legislature. But then, of course, there was a big crowd outside and the Premier, in essence, wanted to kind of reenact his swearing in outside the legislature and he wanted you there for that reenactment. And I think that's unprecedented. I'm not sure that that kind of thing was ever done before or frankly, quote unquote, is done. But he did it. And I wonder what kind of discussions you and your people had with him and his people beforehand to find the kosher way to make all of that happen. You know, the role of a vice regal um, involves a lot of tradition, continuity, uh, all of those things through symbols and ceremonies uh, that, uh, that provide a safety net in many ways. Uh, it's part of our, our nature of constitutional democracy. And so uh, these things matter very much. And yes, there were conversations about how to do it with dignity and respect. And that was what we tried to do. Recognizing that... Um, Democracy is about people. It's about citizens. And it is about uh, opening the doors to the ways in which things are done, allowing people in so it's not so much of a mystery, uh, and respecting the views of citizens. So the fundamental underpinning of uh, why would you do this was really all about um, a wonderful teaching moment. To show, to, to show, show more him. people. Oh, to show people. Okay. To show people what actually goes on. Because I presume there's a moment where, where he's saying, I want to be sworn in again outside. I'm riffing here, so, you, you know, confirm or deny as you like. I want to be, you know, I know you're swearing me in inside, Your Honor, but I want to be sworn in again outside in front of all of my support group. And I presume at some point you have to say to the Premier, well, we don't do that. I do this once and I don't kind of do it again for show afterwards. How close did you get to actually having to say to him, you know, I'm sorry, Premier, I'm just not going to do that. I think that's when you rely on good teamwork. Um, and uh, and it, was, uh, it was certainly our teams were talking about what was doable. And when you listen to the real intent um, of, uh, of the key person involved, uh, then you can always find a way. So you understood that he would very much want to share this experience with his supporters, and therefore you were content to kind of uh, enable that as you could while respecting tradition. Have I got that right? That's right. And it wasn't, it wasn't just supporters. Uh, and, and that was certainly the view that we took 
which was this was a, an educational opportunity for citizens. Um, okay. You know there are people who think that you represent an outdated institution and that there was, there's really no need for it anymore. And I guess I want to give you the chance to make the case, you having done the job for nearly a decade, as to why you think it's still useful to have a lieutenant governor in Ontario. You know, I think, um, I feel very fortunate that I actually was in this position during the time of a crisis. Um, because we saw during COVID that um, someone needed to provide stability, continuity, uh, tradition, uh, someone who didn't have an agenda. And it wasn't, for some people, it was comforting to know that there was someone who was there every day uh, uh, concerned about citizens. And when I say that, it's because it wasn't about my agenda. It was that we were able to amplify what was actually going on. I should ask you this as well. The, the typical job of a lieutenant governor lasts five years. And you had the job for nine. Did you ever call Ottawa at any point during your term and say, you know, guys, I'm, I'm like seriously overtime here. Do you plan to replace me at some point or did you ever do that? No, because I was in absolute denial. I adored the position, <laughs> and uh, and in fact, one of the uh, one of the things that uh, I'm faced with now, as I embrace change and go through this transition, is I cannot, for the life of me, imagine how anything I do from here on in will will it all measure up to the last almost ten years. It's uh, well, people in public life. All I mean. Premiers and cabinet ministers always face that. They know their next job's never going to be as good as yeah. or as impactful as the previous one. And you, you, you figure out how to navigate that conundrum. The real joy of my 10 years has not been in the grand moments. They've been in the intimate moments. They've been in the conversations where you're holding someone's hand and thanking them on behalf of their country for what they've done or taking, when, you, when we couldn't gather in public, taking um, a medal to someone in their driveway uh, and, and having the opportunity to talk to their family about what this means to them. It's, uh, it's about um, inviting into the suite um, an Afghan family who've, who've been helped to escape by journalists in this city uh, helping them get from safe house to safe house, and then coming in to tell their story to me. And sometimes in tears, but being able to say to them, I asked you here because I want you to know you belong here and you're welcome here. And so often I think um, I was very selfish. I mean, that mattered to me. But it was those quiet moments, those intimate moments, those one-on-one -on -one conversations that are so much more meaningful than all of the big honorary awards that we do. It's, it's those conversations and we did, that's why we did seven to 800 events a year hmm. uh, because it was, it was taking the time to be with people. I, um, I will never forget um, those uh, uh, opportunities to honor people with an Order of Canada 
because they were too ill to go to Rideau Hall. I'll never forget the way too many funerals that I was a part of. But I'll also remember the call to the commissioner of the OPP or the chief of police finding out that someone was murdered on their watch. Uh, again, because so many people don't have anyone to talk to. And, uh, and that's how you learn about people. It's hearing, telling those stories is the first step to creating empathy. Because if you have to walk in someone else's shoes, even just through listening to them, that changes the picture, changes the conversation. And we just need more, more places to do that. The things I learned through COVID, governments really do matter at moments of crisis. You can, in fact, develop trust and confidence in science and technology so that you actually have evidence-based policy. But I also learned about, as we all did, about interdependence, interconnectedness. Uh, and I learned about inequities. We had so many inequities that were laid bare. And now we have, having learned all of those things, now we're faced with global um, challenges, global crises, all at the same time. A pandemic that's not over yet, climate change that's no longer academic. It's here in spades. Mm. And changing geopolitics, you know, uh, why is it that we have these unthinkable wars? And each and every one of those is affecting everybody around the globe, but it's affecting everyone here at home. Who would have thought we'd have dinner conversations about supply chain management? And who would have thought that actually it was people in the economic sector who've come to realize that issues in the social sector that were called women's issues, like childcare, are actually critical to being able to bring us back to economic prosperity. So many lessons and so many stories. Okay, am I allowed to say how old you are? You will whether I ask you or not, or whether I let you or not. Your next birthday is going to be number eight zero. Can you imagine? I can't. It uh, doesn't feel that way. Well, and it doesn't look that way, obviously, or whatever <laughs> our impression of being 80 is. But you still think you've got another big mission in you? Do you absolutely. Hmm. Do you know, um, one of the joys of this experience has been uncovering how many people have passed their 100th birthday. I loved going up to Sunnybrook, to the veterans wing, because people are so happy there. They always have smiles on their faces. They're telling these wonderful stories to one another. And so many of them, a large portion of them, are well over 100 now. Hmm. So you got 20 years to go. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's our former chief storyteller, comforter-in-chief, and 29th Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, Elizabeth Dadswell. We're so glad that uh, you could make some time for us to come here, and uh, I really look forward to seeing what you're going to do next. Thanks, Your Honour. You're welcome. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you. Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.